Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Coming to us, uh, Mr. Brady of Texas, Kevin Brady, of course, a Republican from Texas, and far more that, far more than that, I should say, one of the clearest thinkers on the Republican side on what is correct away from the federalism of this nation. Kevin Brady, I want to take you down to your woodlands, down to Houston Methodist Hospital, and Kelty Baker, the head of medicine at that wonderful institution. I want you to explain how you dovetail. Dr. Baker's science with the tone here, not of anti-science, but the tone of doubt that we see nationwide among the unvaccinated. You know, I know this is uh, this is frustrating. I am vaccinated, have been urging my constituents uh, and neighbors to do the same. It is a it is a difficult argument to win, frankly, with those who are unvaccinated. I think at the end of the day, it comes down to genuinely for most you know, they don't know that this is safe yet. Right. I think many of them are telling me, you know, get out of the emergency authorization, make that a permanent safety decision. I right. think that will help some, if not all. Congressman Brady, you had great support for Donald Trump. He got vaccinated quietly without fanfare. What do you need from your guy right now to change the trend of the unvaccinated? Yeah, I think the key thing here, obviously, uh, reward people for being vaccinated. We're seeing in places like Houston where they're actually asking the vaccinated to mask up to protect the unmasked, uh, unvaccinated. I think that's probably the wrong incentive. Uh, secondly, I think we need a permanent authorization for those vaccines and a lot more consumer education, uh, certainly in our area. Uh, I think that would be key. So we're seeing, you know, more of this delta in some of the land, the uh, variant. We're also unfortunately seeing that coming across the southern border, which is uh, troubling people in a big way as well. So I'm hopeful we can keep making progress. But, I, but I'll tell you, too, I think I think President Biden and Vice President Harris did the country disservice during the campaign, essentially planting the seeds of doubt on the, the, the vaccines developed under President Trump. And I think that's Okay, I'll give you that. Okay, is, you know, is, is Congressman Brady, please. I'm going to give you that idea that they planted the seeds of doubt, and it was part of the campaign as well. But you didn't answer my question. What does this nation need from the former president right now to explain to the Jacksonian unvaccinated that they need to be vaccinated? Well, I think the president, President Trump, has been clear about this. So he has talked about the need to be vaccinated, talked about the remarkable uh, success in bringing these vaccines to market in record time. So I will tell you, I think it is this president and vice president who bear the burden right now. And I'll tell you, I'm willing to help and eager to help. I've been preaching this back home in a, in a big way, especially as we see these new variants coming forward. Uh, Representative, there is a huge delta, and I per, forgive me for the pun, between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to the vaccination rates. And actually, in more heavily Democratic areas, the vaccination rates tend to be much higher, and people tend to be more open to getting vaccinated. How is it that you see President Biden playing a big role in shoring up confidence in vaccines if it's largely the Republican regions that still show doubt? Well, I'll tell you, it was early on, it was the Democratic regions. 
where the problems were at. And everyone criticized President Trump for that. I think, frankly, to be fair, the president, this president now in the administration bears the responsibility and certainly, you know, perhaps for the first time, bring both parties together uh, on this mission, because I think it is so important right now. Again, it's it is it's frustrating for those of us who think we should find common ground here to have this just go it alone mentality. I, I'm a little frustrated with it, but we have to keep making progress and it's not yeah. going door to door, not mandating. I, I think we can do more of it. I think we can do better. All right. In just have 45 seconds left, uh, Congressman, I'm wondering, you talk about bipartisanship and bringing people together in Washington. What's your uh, chance, in your opinion, based on your Republican colleagues, of having a bipartisan agreement in the very near term on this $1 trillion infrastructure spending package that so many people uh, seem to support whatever side of the aisle that they are on? Yeah, I think I think we're all hopeful that they can find common ground here. We haven't seen much of the details, but I think we're we're encouraging people to find common ground. I'm less optimistic about the votes for it because clearly the speaker Pelosi and Leader Schumer want this to be the pilot shoot that pulls along that three and a half trillion dollar massive expansion of the welfare state. There won't be Republican support for that if they were truly separated. If one went forward, period. I think there'd be strong support for infrastructure. We ought to get it done. Kevin, thank you so much. Kevin Brady with us of Texas. Greatly appreciate it. The congressman from the Woodlands. Right now, off of Dr. Bremer's comments, Dr. Emish Adalja with Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. I need to talk to you, doctor, about the medicine realities within democracy and liberty. Ian Bremer is talking from a political aspect. You represent the medical aspect. Can you succeed at your medicine amid American democracy and our definition of American liberty? Yes, I think we can. And I think if you're talking about vaccine mandates, I think it's one thing for the government to mandate. I think that's very difficult and doesn't usually happen. But we've got so many private organizations, employers, schools, or things that uh, transportation companies where I do think it's justified for mandates, including in my own industry where we're struggling to get nurses, for example, vaccinated. So I do think that when we institute mandates, you see vaccination rates go up. And I think it, it illustrates confidence in the vaccines because they are safe and effective. This should be right. a non-controversial vaccine. Why are selected nurses afraid to be vaccinated? It's unclear to me because 96% plus of doctors are vaccinated. But when you go to nurses, it's maybe in some hospitals 50%. And it's likely because they've swallowed misinformation, at least from my personal experience talking to some of these nurses. They've seen something on Facebook, uh, specifically things about fertility, things about this being experimental. Uh, and, and there are some people who believe these ideas about microchips and 5G as well, which is kind of surprising. But it, it's taken hold. And I think the, the nursing unions have kind of given them cover and have blocked uh, administrators from uh, or at least scared off administrators from mandating the vaccines but more and more of them are going to do it and i think once we get full fda approval i think it's really going to be universal i think the va steps yesterday as well as other organizations are going to make it the norm that healthcare workers should be vaccinated and i think that's what it should be because it's, it's a professional obligation and, and i was one of the first people to get vaccinated the minute i could before christmas
Amish, some people might say this is an overly narrow or complicated issue at this time of the day, but I feel like this goes to the heart of the issue, and that is the Department of Justice and the memo that they put out yesterday basically saying that even though this vaccine only has emergency authorization, that doesn't necessarily mean that employers and that universities cannot mandate that people get vaccinated. This sort of goes to the heart of the issue of legal immunity for entities that decide to create some sort of vaccination mandates. How important is it? for the government to lead on this issue? It's important that the government give these companies assurance because they were kind of brought into this by the government's request through Operation Warp Speed. And often during pandemics, when there's a public health emergency, there are indemnifications done for those companies in order to get them to, to make this vaccine because they have to do it quickly, they have to do it uh, in an expeditious manner, and there is some uncertainty. And this is what happened during the, 19, the 1976 swine flu. It happened during 2009 H1N1 pandemic. So I think it is important that the government say that these companies are going to be um, indemnified because we're in a, we're in a, basically this is a government-run program in order to curtail this pandemic. I don't think that there's going to be that many lawsuits, though, because when you look at the, the safety and efficacy of these vaccines, they're really off the charts when it comes to any vaccines that humans have ever created. So then why haven't, they, why haven't these vaccines gotten full authorization? Why do we still have an asterisk around them at a time when there is such efficacy rates? And why is it that kids under the age of 12 cannot get vaccinated? So the emergency use authorization was necessary because in order for the FDA to approve a vaccine, they need six months of data. That's just sort of what they do. So Pfizer recently crossed that threshold. They've applied now for priority review. It's likely to happen faster than, six, than, than the six months that they have during a priority review. But it is something that I think we should do faster and quicker because we know that this is holding up many places from mandating the vaccines. And it's giving anti-vaccine activists a talking point, calling it experimental, even though emergency use authorizations have been around for a long time and we use them during H1N1 and during Zika. I think that we're going to see ch children approved. Uh, below the age of 12, but it's important that we do the studies because we're trying to make sure that this is safe and effective, that the risk-benefit ratio favors the vaccine in that age group. Because remember, as you get to those younger age groups, the, the risk of severe disease falls to, to very low levels, lower than influenza for a child less than 12 years of age. So we want to get it right. We want to get the dosing right. Hopefully, this will be something that we right. see probably in late fall, early winter. Dr. Adelge, on a game theory basis, it seems to me that the medical community is drowning in success. It's a miracle that we got the mRNA vaccines done so quickly. Is most of the angst right now because this is all happening so fast, unlike a slower process of previous pandemics? It may be part of it because mRNA vaccines do give you that great advantage to make a vaccine candidate within hours or weeks and then move into clinical trials quickly. And I think that the lightning speed of this, which was one of the advantages of mRNA vaccines, has been something that people have exploited to say this happened too quickly. But you imagine if we were still waiting the old way for a new vaccine. How many more hundreds of thousands of people would have died yeah. in the United States? How many illnesses would have happened? So I, I think that it, the, the speed of the mRNA vaccines is what makes them the most attractive thing about them. And it's probably going to change the way we face infectious disease outbreaks in the future forever. It's, it's a huge advantage we now have as humans against the viral kingdom. Doctor, we appreciate your time and thank you very much for your hard work, sir. Joining us at the end of a very long shift, I'm sure. Dr. Amish Adoucher there, Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security Senior Scholar.
Most people in this building would call me a humble guy, extremely humble, yeah, and would. always willing to listen to really smart yeah. people. And here's the first line in a note that I got from Julian Emmanuel. His guest notes, just the first line, Tom. <clears throat> John is right. So let's start there. <laughs> Julian Emmanuel, BTIG Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist. Julian, let's start there. Why is John right? Uh, because, John, you've been saying this for quite some time now that, you know, just asking the question, why can't you just be a passive S&P 500 index investor uh, in a world where if you look at 2021, active management, as we heard from guests earlier in the show, uh, has been giving you headaches for the most part, at least the last several months. The answer is to us, because if you're just simply a passive investor, you sort of are open to this range of emotions that, frankly, if you look at the course of investing over the last 12 or 13 years, certainly since the bottom of the financial crisis, you have to be in the psychological mode to where you're buying the dips. It's very difficult to say, I'm going to commit cash in March of last year. Very difficult to say, I'm going to commit cash in March of 2009, the times when you really wanted to do it. So either having something that causes you to outperform to the upside or outperform to the downside gives you that psychological edge to do what we think you're going to need to do and want to do for a number of years to come. I should be very careful here. I'm not making a trade recommendation. I want to be clear about that. Julian, you're the man who's got to do that for me. Work through it now then with me. Got all these issues on the horizon at the moment. How COVID cases play out? Do they translate into higher deaths, increased hospitalizations, maybe more restrictions on the economy that just turn down the dial on mobility? Then you've got the China factor as well. It's just worry after worry. Julian, just piling up, as always, and this market keeps climbing that wall of worry to all-time highs. How do you navigate those issues? So, again, look, the price action tells all right now. And the price action, uh, even though it is telling all, is telling a somewhat contradictory message that at the headline, the S&P 500 continues to rise. Uh, very much propelled by the Nasdaq, within the Nasdaq, very much propelled by a number of stocks, all of whom we're going to hear about earnings over the next two to three days. Um, but you, there is starting to be a diminution uh, amongst the, the rest of the troops. Uh, breath has turned uh, a little bit uh, soft. That can continue. Uh, but frankly, from our point of view, when you look at the bigger picture, when you've seen the kind of economic strength that we have seen build over the course of the year, whether this is the yeah. peak of growth or not, the implication is stocks are likely moving higher over a multi-year period from here. Julian, you look at the dynamics that are out there, the derivatives and all that. Let's look at the one derivative, which is cash on the balance sheet. Today, this afternoon, the three big ones, Microsoft, Apple, the other one, Google, 135 plus 125 plus 204 gazillion dollars. These guys could top trick half a trillion dollars cash in their report this afternoon. What's the social good of all that money? Should they return it to shareholders? Well, look, they are, for the most part, slowly through buybacks. Um, it, you know, the, the, the signaling of uh, sort of a special dividend or something like that from companies like that that are poised for continuous growth, secular growers, has tended over time not to be good. You can argue about uh, the social good, but I think, frankly, what you're going to hear from them is, you know, ways of uh, getting stakeholders more included in the debate rather than just shareholders. So talking about wages, 
talking about employment programs uh, in an economy that frankly uh, confounds people because of uh, the, the lack of the return of the participation rate in a, in a market where there are jobs incredibly plentiful. Julian, what signaling power does the bond market have for equities at this point? Lisa, that is the, I don't know, $20 trillion question, the size of, of the U.S. economy. From our point of view, uh, it's really rather limited. Look, obviously, we know that the Fed has, as you said earlier, put their thumb uh, on the bond market. Um, but also, when you think about it, all the extraordinary monetary and fiscal stimulus has come together to chase asset prices higher across the entire range, whether it's commodities earlier in the year, obviously stocks, uh, goods prices, i.e. inflation, or the bond market. To us, it's all the wall of money. And the question is, is policy or perception likely to change? And our view is that you could get to a point where if the labor market does sort of uh, uh, um, remove the logjam that we have come the fall, which is the Fed's expectation uh, in an environment where the Fed is not likely to advance the taper conversation materially this week, you could see yields start to rise in the long end. Julian, just quickly, are you still at 4,000 year end on the S&P? We are. And, and here's, here's the reasoning, John. Again, as I said earlier, this kind of economic strength, uh, while it bodes very, very well on a multi-year period doesn't necessarily mean that corrections don't happen. We've gone quite some time without a correction. And frankly, we're concerned about some of those internals, uh, the, the lack of breath. Um, and we think actually, if you look at it, this could be a week where there's a potential for a surprise in terms of reaction from the large cap tech stocks, which have been doing all the heavy lifting. Interesting. They start reporting in earnest a little bit later after the close. Julian, thank you, sir. Julian Emanuel, BCIG Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist. Julian, love catching up with you, sir, as always. Hi. We're going to start now, stop now and look at Apple. Will Power with us with Bear, the senior research analyst, with a terrific note. And what's so great about Will Power, at the bottom of his note, he shows you his belief and his track record from another time. This is a guy who just before COVID, just before the pandemic, was outperform on 90, and Will Power sustained that outperform through thick and thin. Will Power, you sustain your outperform today. Simply can Beijing upset the Apple, Apple cart? Can Beijing, all this upset in China, derail your outperform? Well, Tom, that's a great question. Good morning. Thanks, as always, uh, for having me. Great, great to be on, 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 the, on the show here. Look, China's always a big wild card, and, you know, at least at this point, uh, has still been a, a big driver of Apple's results. And we're still not expecting that to change near term, but it's certainly something we keep an eye on with all the tumult that's, that's underway in that country with respect to, you know, other, other tech companies. But at this point, Apple's been able to navigate that market fairly successfully. And of course, that's just one piece of the puzzle for Apple as you think about the broad-based drink we expect again you know, this quarter. Well, as you know, the cheat guide to Apple over the last decade is just to buy it, to keep buying it, and then to keep buying it. It's complex on one front, though, and I've always struggled with it, and I'd love for you to guide me through it. What multiple do you put on a name like Apple, given the evolution of this company over the last 10 years? Well, it's a great question. It's been one of the central questions. And I think, you know, a, a linchpin of probably, the, the, if there's a bear thesis, is probably on the, the valuation accretion and the multiple expansion, you know, that, that's occurred here 
over time. Look, we played a long game with Apple, right? And our view over a long period of time has been it'll continue to grow into valuation. And you're betting on their ability to continue to add new value added, you know, services and solution, you know, for end customers. And that in turn continues to drive, you know, more, you know, shareholder value. Uh, our view is that it increasingly, you know, falls into the consumer staples camp, right? So that, that's not a name that you can really cop against traditional, you know, big cap tech, you know, per se. And as you start to look at, you know, consumer staples names, it's, a, you know, we think you can justify multiple to get you closer to 30 times, which ultimately is what we're currently using to get to our $160 target price. Well, this is an important point, the idea that you emphasize services. Does that mean that at this point, people are basically not looking for Apple to necessarily innovate with the Apple Watch or some other product that really it has to do with ongoing revenues from either iPhone sales or from the services that you can get on the iPhone that will determine the future revenues? Well, I think that's a great point. And look, I mean, services now is you know, 20% of revenue. It's growing north of 20%. It has a much higher than average gross margin of close to 70%. And that's that's a big part of the story in terms of driving you know higher higher multiple than what it had traded at um, historically. And our expectation is that can continue. Look, I mean, they I think just last quarter reported um, close to 660 million paid subscriptions you know, on the platform. And that's a number that continues to rise by 40, 50 million, you know, every quarter. And that's why it's critical that, that services like Apple TV Plus and things down the road continue um, you know, to take off because that helps that helps drive that line of business for them. But of course, that's just one piece of it, right? The key to the story has been the consistent diversification beyond iPhone, which is now down to a little under 50% of revenue, but still, of course, the linchpin to the story and, and a big driver near and medium term still. Would you like to see Apple become a media company? I mean, there's been so much speculation about their buying, let's say, a Netflix or some other big service uh, provider that way to enhance their Apple TV. Is that still on the table? Well, I think Apple TV Plus is very much on the table, as you know, right? Ted Lasso, of course, has been a great show. Uh, but they need a few more hits like that. Uh, I, I think at this point, it doesn't appear they plan to buy a major media company to kind of jumpstart that <laughs> effort. I mean, look, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Perhaps they should have done that. You know, perhaps they should have looked at something in the autonomous vehicle market. I think these are all things of intense interest as you go forward. Look, at the end of the day, part of the bet on this and the bet on the valuation is that this is a true platform yeah. that they can build off, right? And services and media are you know key elements of that. And now for William Power, for those of you on radio, we get out the HP 12C. Okay, you don't do a sum of the parts on Apple, but you do extrapolate out to some form of estimate off of $5.10. If I'm the gloomiest Lisa Abramowitz gloomy on Apple that I could gloomily possibly be, <laughs> I would do a 15% gross up on this. If I do that 24 months out, Will Power, I'm at $202 a share with a $3.4 trillion market cap. Is that feasible? Look, I, I, I think that's possible. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think part of what's going to happen here, uh, Tom, is, as I said earlier, they're going to continue to grow into the multiple. I, my, my expectation is while we, right. while we may not have the level of beat we had this past quarter, I think there's still nice upside to current estimates, both this quarter and as you move into the fiscal yeah. Q4. And look, one of the key things to keep in mind, we haven't really touched on, this 5G cycle is still super early, and it may not be the yeah. passive super cycle in year one, but if they've just sold over you know, 100 million iPhones that are 5G capable against a yeah. global base that's close to a billion iPhones, that's a 
big upgrade yeah. opportunity still for multiple years. John, that pause that Will Power gave you when I asked him that question is known as the general counsel pause. That's because he's really not supposed to interpret, extrapolate out 24 months. He's got and the notes like, written down, Tom. Is my badge at Baird going to work How tomorrow? to respond and what to respond to and what to ignore. Yeah. William Power's going to go now. Baird senior yeah. research analyst. Will, great to catch up. Appreciate your time, sir. William Power of Baird looking for 160. That's the price target from Baird on Apple. Right now for Global Wall Street, Ian Lingen joins with BMO Capital Markets, head of U.S. rate strategies, a hyper-dense morning note, always read worldwide. Ian, I'm going to go right to a single sentence you have, which suggests the demand for bills, notes, and bonds, and that is the backstop of demand you see out there. Define that backstop. Well, Tom, I certainly think that if we look at the primary takedown of Treasury supply via the auctions, we continue to see a willingness to underwrite Treasuries, whether it's from domestic accounts, primarily banks and investment firms, or overseas, central banks in particular. These auctions continue to see strong sponsorship, and that at a minimum suggests that there will continue to be a backstop of demand that isn't really going away anytime soon. It's less about whether or not there's a willingness to absorb supply and more a function of what levels will we see these takedowns. And with 10-year yields at 125, it's very difficult to argue it's not a, a strong market for U.S. debt. Ian, what needs to go right or wrong for that matter to get 10-year yields to 180? from 126, 180 by year end. That was a call from Morgan Stanley. What would need to happen for that to happen, in your mind at least? Well, in my mind, I don't think that it is as simple as passing, for example, the infrastructure bill, because that will be staged in over time and not actually lead to the type of wage inflation that the market would need to see for inflation in and of itself to become self-fulfilling. The one key aspect of this recovery that has been missing thus far has been wage inflation. If we see the labor market participation rate continue to be low and there are pockets of labor scarcity over the course of the next few months, we might see spikes in wages, which would then get the market excited about the idea that inflation could be self-fulfilling. But I'll argue even that would fall into the Fed's characterization as transitory. Uh, we really are coming out of a massive shift in the real economy, and there's a lot of different moving pieces yet to be uh, resettled where they will be going forward. Ian, this is really important. Tom and Lisa were discussing it a little bit earlier. The failure to see real continued improvement in things like the employment to population ratio, the participation rate in America. If we don't get that improvement, if we don't get back to where we were, say, how much would that complicate the outlook for this Federal Reserve, which, to be fair, is pinning its forecast on the idea that we do fully recover on those aspects? Well, I think it will very much complicate the, uh, the Fed's path for rates going forward, because on the one hand, they've acknowledged that inflation has come in stronger than even they were expecting. But on the other hand, under their new framework, the Fed needs to remain accommodative for, frankly, the foreseeable future until the unemployment rate gets to the lows that we've already seen. And within that, we are assuming, and so is the Fed, that the labor market participation rate slowly starts to increase. If you don't see labor market participation increase, then you'll continue to have this surplus supply of workers that if they 
if there isn't enough incentive for them to slowly come back into the market, uh, will really leave the Fed at a loss in their new framework. At this point, given the Fed's intervention, is the bond market accurately reflecting the fundamentals? I think at this moment, the bond market is reflecting the realities of the Delta variant, not so much that it's going to lead to increased lockdowns or the revival of restrictions in the U.S., but rather it's a reminder that these variants, these, the potential for these variants are going to be with the real economy for a while. And so while we might have brought into the beginning of this year the assumption that after Labor Day we'd be in the new normal, the reality is we're going to continue as an economy and globally and domestically uh, to, to deal with the pandemic. So it's extended the timeline out of the pandemic. I think that's why rates are where they are at this moment. Just real quick, do you expect negative real yields to go even more negative as inflation expectations continue to pick up? Uh, as long as nominals are contained, inflation is uh, drifting its direction and the Fed doesn't hasten the departure from QE, there's no reason to expect that we couldn't see uh, real yields continue to drift lower. I think 10-year uh, e or 10-year tips yields at negative uh, one 25, which would be another 15 plus basis points from here, is something that the market needs to have on the radar as a risk. Ian, thank you. Good to get your view on this market, that's for sure. Ian Lingham there, BMO Capital Markets Head of US Rate Strategy. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.